to your neighbor and tell them it's going to be good tonight. Amen. Well, it's spring break, and um, boy, it's beautiful out. And so you get an extra whatever reward in heaven for being here because you could have done other things. But it's always a good thing to see this many people during spring break on a Wednesday night because it tells me you're hungry for the Word of God. And I like to tell people sometimes that um, Wednesday nights are often informational and Sundays are inspirational. Now, not always, because I teach through Bible books on, on Wednesday night, and it's very devotional. But um, sometimes, like tonight, it's informational. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I like information. Amen. Amen? Especially if it has to do with understanding Christianity, the Bible, uh, my faith. I like information, because information often brings inspiration. Amen? Amen. Information does bring inspiration. So tonight, I, I told you I was going to have several questions, but the more I got into this about the Bible translations, the more I realized I'm going to do one. Because I want you, you know, I, I couldn't do it justice by quickly going through this. Um, because I want to talk to you about where did all the Bible translations come from? How, how did we get them? Now, let me just see. Let me just try something here. Everybody in here with a New King James Bible, raise, or hold it up or raise your hand. If you've got a New King James. All right? Look, at, look around you. How about New American Standard? One, two, three, four, or several. How about uh, NLT, the New Living Translation? There they are. How about the Amplified? Anybody? Okay, there was one woman who was Amplified. All right, two. Well, there's more over there. Okay. Um, now let me just, let me ask, how many a Living Bible? I mean, they're all alive, but you know what I mean. Living, the paraphrase. How many have a, a, the message? Okay, back there. there. See, I haven't asked about one where there's not people that have one, some of those. So, so we've got all kinds of Bible translations represented here just tonight. So I want to talk about where they came from. The, the question is simply this. Where did all the Bible translations come from? And is mine a good one? Now, you're not going to be walking out of here tonight throwing a Bible in the trash. Don't get me wrong, okay, and, and getting another one because I don't want you to do that. Um, but let me, let me just go into this, and it is a lot of information, and it's a little bit technical in spots, but I think we're going to do fine. So let me answer the question, where did all the Bible translations come from? Now, amazingly, there are over 50, 50 different Bible translations into the English language. 50, 50, did I say 50? 50. That's a lot. Uh, but what is a translation? We have all these different ones represented here tonight. What is a translation? Let me answer that by starting at the very beginning of things. Now, in case you didn't know, the Old Testament was originally written in the Hebrew language with a smattering of Aramaic. While the New Testament was written in what is called Koine Greek, and all that Koine Greek means is it was the common Greek of Jesus' day. It was the everyday, common folk Greek of Jesus' day. Okay? Now, the Old Testament and the New Testament were written on papyrus. 
Papyrus was sort of the paper of that day. And it was a material prepared in ancient Egypt originally from the stem of a water plant. And it was we've all seen the scrolls all rolled up and then you go to unroll it and it stretches way far. Uh, we've seen those, right? That's papyrus. And it was from the stem of a water plant and used in sheets throughout the ancient Mediterranean world for writing or painting on. Also, they made rope out of it, sandals, and even boats. Don't ask me to explain the boats. I'm just telling you what I found. But papyrus, like paper, aged and rotted over time. So copies were made by necessity of the Old and New Testament in order to preserve the writings. No copies made, they rot and fade away, and we, have, we don't have the Word of God anymore. The copies were made by copyists, okay? People who copied. These were men who, just picture them, stooped over a sheet of papyrus, and you kinda, I kind of picture a lantern burning, and they got the quill pen, and they're, they're just stooped over, and they're looking at, at the, the manuscript they're copying, and letter for letter, they didn't have Bix. They did not have um, fountain pens. They were dipping in ink and writing and dipping in ink and writing with a quill. And laboriously, you can imagine how long this took, because you know how long your Old Testament is and, and the New Testament. So there they are, letter by letter. They're looking, they're copying, they're looking, they're copying, they're looking, they're copying. Man, I'll bet you needed a neck rub after that. You know, you're stooped over. Now, and then more copyists made more copies and so on through the centuries. Because you kept having to make new ones because the new copies eventually got old. And we're, "Uh uh-oh, I better make some new ones or we're going to lose the word of God. So we know we have a large number of accurate copies because... When the newer copies are compared to much older copies, and I'm going to get into that more in a moment when I talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls. But when the newer copies are compared to much older copies, they are essentially the same. One of the great marvels of the Bible that you hold in your hand is how God Almighty preserved it down through time. It's a miracle. It's a miracle book. It's a miracle book. I love the Word of God. I love the Bible. To, to me, it is, it is uh, there's no book like the Bible. It, it is supernatural. When I read every morning, I, I can't wait. First thing I do, I have a little saying for myself, no Bible, no breakfast. So I get into the Word of God and feed my soul man first, man, right? Then I go eat. But, but when I read that Bible, it's like honey going into my soul. It's just like honey going into my soul. I love the Word of God. And I, and I think one of the reasons I love it is because I know it's the Word of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Theonoustos is the Greek word for inspiration, and it means breathed out of the nostrils. So it's telling us that, you know, as we exhale, we talk. We can't talk inhaling. You talk when you exhale. It's telling us, it's giving us the, 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 a most graphic picture of how God exhaled out the Word of God. It says in Peter, he moved, the Holy Spirit moved on holy men of old, and they wrote as the Holy Spirit moved them. 
It wasn't automatic writing where you kind of went into a trance. You don't even need to look at the paper because you're being guided by something. But they were moved on. And the idea of the picture is the way the wind will blow a sailboat across the lake. The sail catches the wind and it just kind of blows it across the lake. These holy men of old were borne along by the Spirit of God and, and, and moved by the Spirit and they wrote as the Spirit moved them. And so this is the Word of God. It's unlike any other book on earth because it's not from earth. Right? You say, Jeff, now come on, that's a little freaky. No, I'm telling you. God the Father moved on holy men of old and God the Holy Spirit led them in what to write. So it's inspired. So I think that's one of the reasons I can't wait to get to it in the morning. And, And if I'm under stress or I'm in a battle... I go straight to the Bible, straight to the Word of God, because I know that faith comes by hearing the Word. Now I'm preaching a little bit. Let me go back to my text here. Now, so say with me, God preserved it down through time, through all these copies and the copyists who made the copies. Now, you've probably heard, for instance, I'll give you a great example of, of all the copies. You've heard, how many of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? A better question would be, how many have not heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Very few. And, and that's okay. I understand. But most of us have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls because it was a huge deal. Let me, let me explain to you what happened there. As the story goes, in 1947, one year before Israel became a nation again, in the Judean desert, a shepherd one day left his flock of sheep and goats to search for one stray sheep. It sounds like a Bible story, doesn't it? And amid the crumbling limestone cliffs that line the northwestern rim of the Dead Sea, he found a cave in the crevice of a steep rocky hillside. Now, I dug up a picture, and they're going to put that picture up there, and I just want to show you what this looked like. There you go. Now, you see the caves on the side of that hill. You see those holes, that the cave? That's the Judean desert, and it was caves. Those might be the caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Now, get it, take a look at that. They're not going to take it down for just a minute because I want to talk about it. Take a look at that and realize that we know the story, for instance, when David was running from Saul. It said he would go into the wilderness and he would hide in caves. It was caves just like that. And it was burning hot. I mean, it gets hot in that Judean desert. So picture David and his men holed up in one of those caves while the madman Saul is stalking them and seeking to kill David. But now, fast forward to Jesus' time. Jesus is baptized in water by John the Baptist. Then he's led by the Spirit where? Into the wilderness. It was the Judean wilderness. So it was a place that kind of looked like this, barren, hot, wild, where Jesus had his showdown in the desert and fought the devil and went through the temptations and came out on the other side in the power of the Spirit. Amen? Amen? So that gives you an idea of where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Because this is, folks, this isn't even a needle in a haystack story. This is a sovereign, providential, God ordering this young shepherd's steps. There's no question in my mind, because let me read to you what happened. So uh, he's looking for this, this lost sheep. He finds a cave in the crevice of a steep rocky hillside like that right there, and intrigued, He cast a stone into the dark interior, only to be startled by the sound of breaking pots. 
in a place that looked like that? Now, this sound would soon echo around the world. Oh, catch this, because this is so powerful. For he had stumbled on the greatest archaeological find of the 20th century, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, what were they? Well, upon entering the cave, the young shepherd found a mysterious collection of large clay jars. The majority of the clay jars were empty, and upon examining the remaining few, he found the jars were intact, with the lids still in place. However, a closer look revealed nothing but old scrolls. This gives me goosebumps right about now. Because he's, he's found inside these jars old scrolls, papyrus, old papyrus, some wrapped in linen and blackened with age. Well, when the scrolls were later examined by a Hebrew university professor, he was amazed to see Hebrew manuscripts, listen, 1,000 years older than any existing biblical copies. 1,000 years older. You know how long 1,000 years is? Think about it. We think of centuries. You go back two centuries and, and look at all the progress in just two centuries. Look, look at what we've come to in two centuries technologically and in so many other ways. But think about a whole millennium. These were, these were scrolls that were uh, with biblical texts in them that were a thousand years older than the earliest biblical copy we had. And they were a thousand years older. Now it gets better. This professor who first began to read the Hebrew in these texts, his name was Professor, I'm guessing, Sukunik. That'll do. It doesn't matter. But this Hebrew professor recollected in his diary, he wrote these words. My hands shook as I started to unwrap one of them. I read a few sentences. It was written in beautiful biblical Hebrew. The language was like that of the Psalms, but the text was unknown to me. I looked and looked, and I suddenly had the feeling that I was privileged by destiny. Indeed, he was, but it wasn't destiny. It was God. To gaze upon a Hebrew scroll which had not been read for more than 2,000 years. So for us to find something that old, we'd have to find something that was around when Jesus was walking the earth. He's opening up these scrolls that have been preserved in one of those caves, caves like that, in a jar with a lid on it, papyrus wrapped up, sometimes surrounded with silk or some cloth. And he unrolled these old manuscripts. And as he began to read, he began to realize this isn't a thousand, two thousand years old. Two thousand years. Now, for an archaeologist, this was like, okay, I can go to heaven now. Right? Now, it gets better. Among other things, an ancient copy of the entire book of Isaiah was there. The entire book of Isaiah. 66 chapters, although it wasn't broken up into chapters, because chapters came later. This was just a continual, a continuum. The whole copy of the whole book 
of Isaiah. And here's an even better part. This gets better and better. When compared to much later copies of Isaiah, so they went forward. Okay, let's look at some of the much later copies we've got of Isaiah and compare them to this really old copy. So they did. And they were the same. Word for word, the same. Validating the accuracy of the later copies. And it proved that in your hand, you've got what Isaiah wrote. Okay? Now that's supernatural. I mean, come on, folks. A, A young shepherd loses a sheep. Gee, I wonder where he went. He's looking around. He says, wow, there's a cave on the side of a hill. Now, there's bunches of them. Those hills look like, look like uh, honeycomb. They look like catacombs. Caves are everywhere. So he just stoops into one of them and says, I think I'll throw a rock in there. <laughs> so he chunks a rock in there and kaboom, he hears a jar shatter. Why did God let that happen in 1947? Well... In 1948, Israel became a nation again. And many prophecy uh, experts believe that is when the hourglass turned upside down because that was a fulfillment of all kinds of Old Testament prophecy, that Israel would become a nation again in a day, the Bible says, in a day. And that's what happened. They became a nation again in a day. That that would be the generation that would see the return of Christ. Could it be that God allowed these incredibly well-preserved ancient scrolls to be discovered at this time, in this hour, to preach to the world that the Bible is valid. I think so, because I don't believe in mistakes and I don't believe in fate. I believe in the moving of the providential hand of God. That's what I believe in. I don't believe in luck. I don't believe there's luck. I don't believe there's good luck, and I don't believe there's bad luck. If something goes well my way, I say, God bless me. If I go make a stupid mistake, and then I have bad luck, I say, Jeff made a mistake, and now this isn't luck. This is God rebuking me, chasing me, but whatever. I, I I don't believe in luck, fate, or anything. I believe in a providential destiny. Now, as for the New Testament, so that's Old Testament. Let's go to the New Testament. As for the New Testament... There are currently 5,686 known fragments or copies of the New Testament. Again, stop and think about that. 5,686 known fragments, in other words, parts of copies, or full copies of the New Testament in existence. So if critics want to disregard or question the New Testament and say, well, that's just written by men and it's full of mistakes and it's full of errors and and who believes all that crazy stuff anyway? Listen, if critics want to disregard or question the New Testament, they, they also have to disregard and question other ancient writings like Plato, which our colleges love, who our colleges love, Aristotle, Homer, the Iliad, the Odyssey, those ancient books written by Homer, whose writings, the writings of Plato, Aristotle, Homer, whose writings, their writings, we have far, far less copies of. Yeah, you go up to any college university professor and say, do you really believe that we have the accurate writings of Homer 
or of Socrates, or well, Socrates didn't write, I'm sorry, Plato or Aristotle? Do you really believe we have what they really said? He'll say, oh, absolutely. Well, how do you know? Well, we've got copies of, uh, of, of what they wrote, and, and they all agree. Well, then you have to believe, sir or ma'am, in the New Testament. Because the copies of the New Testament that are in existence today are so many more than Plato, Aristotle, Homer, or other ancient writers that they are totally eclipsed by the New Testament manuscripts. There, there, is, no, there is no other document that is ancient, that is old like the New Testament, there's not another one with more manuscript evidence that we have accurate copies than of the New Testament. That's why I tell you, you can trust your Bible. Because they are so numerous, the New Testament copies can be exhaustively cross-checked for accuracy. And just like the Dead Sea Scrolls were held up against the newer copies, and they all agreed, when you hold up all these copies the thousands of copies of the New Testament we have and compare them with one another, the older ones against the newer ones, they all agreed. In other words, they were faithfully copied from the originals. You hold in your hand what Jesus really said, Paul really said, Peter really said, James really said, Jude really said, John really said. You got it. Amen. Makes me want to hold my Bible up and say hallelujah. Let's just try it. Hold your Bible up and just say hallelujah. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. Amen. It's the word of God. All right. Before we say more about translation, let me tell you the difference between a translation and a paraphrase. Uh, a paraphrase is the living Bible, for instance, or the message. Uh, those are paraphrases. Now, let me tell you the difference. A translation is when you begin with the original language, either Greek or Hebrew, translate it word for word into another language. The translator is not, folks, putting into it what he wants it to say or wishes it said, but he's faithfully translating it into another language as closely as possible what the original writer said. That's a translation, and I'm going to show you one in just a moment. On the other hand, a paraphrased Bible, living Bible, the message, is generally written to produce a Bible that flows in a manner similar to a novel. It reads more like a novel than it does a translation. It makes the Bible more pleasant to read. But in the process, significant changes are made to the original text because it's not a word-for-word translation. So I'm going to be sharing with you later on in this message that if you've got a paraphrase, that's great, but never make it your study Bible. But I'm not going to jump ahead. Let me, let me give you a couple of examples here. Just for the record, it is virtually impossible to translate from the original Greek without using some paraphrasing in order for the verse to make sense. Even in the King James, which I'm going to deal with at the end of this message. But even in the hallowed King James, there's still some paraphrasing, and I'm going to show you how. Let's try Matthew 1.23. Matthew 1.23 says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. Now, that little phrase, with child, if you read it in the Greek, here's how it would translate. 
shall have in belly. Shall have in belly. So behold, a virgin shall have in belly. How many would like for your Bible to say that? A virgin, can you see me reading that at Christmas? Behold, a virgin shall have in belly. In womb. But that's how it reads in the Greek. So what do the, the King James translators do? They said, well, that doesn't make sense to English-speaking people in the 1600s. So we're going to say, shall be with child. But that is not a direct translation. That's a little bit of paraphrasing going on. Okay? Because they had to make it make sense. I'll give you another example. Matthew 27, 44. It says, the thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. That's King James. But if you read the, word, the, the Greek, there is one word to describe cast the same in his teeth, and it's to insult. To insult. But King James translators decided to put it in an expression that King James people could understand. So they said they used an expression that was often used in that day, cast the same in his teeth. But that is not a direct translation from the Greek word. Are you following me? So they paraphrased a little bit. Okay? They paraphrased. I'll give you one more example. Luke 23, 46. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now, he gave up the ghost. In the Greek language, that would read, he breathed out. But the King James translator said, if we say he breathed out, people in our day are not going to understand that. So they paraphrased, and they said he gave up the ghost. Because that's how people in the King James 1600s spoke. And so when I read in the King James Bible, and I'm living in the 1600s, and I read he gave up the ghost, I get it. When I read cast the same in his teeth, I get it. Because they took the Greek words and they paraphrased a little bit to make it into words their generation could understand. So even the King James had to paraphrase a bit to make the verses more understandable to people in the 16th century. So I hate to break it to you, King James-only people, that even King James is not pure translation. There's a little bit of paraphrasing going on there. Y'all with me? How many of you feel like you're in a college class tonight? Oh, it's about to get worse. Hang on. All right. I want my folks to understand things. So here we go. So to summarize, a good translation like the KJV, King James Version, New American Standard Bible, New King James Version, the English Standard Version, stay as true as possible to the original meaning of the words, whether they're Greek words or Hebrew words. While a paraphrased Bible will concern itself more with interpreting the passages for you. But I want to show you how a paraphrased Bible can let you down. And I'm going to give you an example here, a few examples. Let me show you a couple of comparisons between the original Greek language, a translation, and a paraphrase. First, using the, the first six words of John 3.16. Everybody say with me, for God so loved the world. Now, in Greek, it looks like this, and I actually put it up there for you. Now, I know that's all Greek to you. <laughs> all right, now, 
But let me read it to you. It reads like this. Hutos, gar, agapesen, hathios, ton, kosmon. That's the Greek. Now listen. If I was going to take those words and do a word-for-word translation, it would read like this. Hutos, thus, gar, indeed, agapesen, loved, hathios, God, Tom Cosmon, the world. So here's how it would read if I went to the Greek text and I directly word for word translated it out. Here's how it would read. Thus indeed loved God the world. That's how the Greek reads. Now stay with me. By the way, this isn't going on radio. I don't think this would be a hit on radio. I can see somebody driving in rush hour traffic. Say what? Okay. So this is just for you tonight. Now, um, so it reads, thus indeed loved God the world. Now, most translations like the KJV, King James, or the NASB, accurately translate those words into God so loved the world. God so loved the world. Instead of indeed, they just said so. But it's primarily the same. God so loved the world. That's a translation. But the paraphrase message Bible puts it like this. This is how much God loved the world. Now, can you see with me, it's not word for word. You're hearing some emotion there, aren't you? It's reading more like a novel. They've taken a little bit of license. It is not in any way, shape, or form, thus indeed love God the world, or God so loved the world. Instead, they go, this is how much God loved the world. So it's not word for word. It's a paraphrase. It's not a translation. I'm going to give you an even stronger example. The last three words of 1 John 4, 8. Read like this. Now, I'm going to read the whole verse, but the last three words are going to be in Greek. 1 John 4, 8, in a translation, reads like this. The one who does not love does not know God. For theos agape estin. Theos agape estin. If you were to do a direct translation from theos, agape, esten, it would be God, love, is. God, love, is. That's how it reads in the Greek. God, love, is. Everybody say, God, love, is. I want you all to say with me, theos, agape, esten. Just turn to your neighbor and say, you just spoke Greek. Now, when you go to the restaurant tonight, I want you to tell the server, you spoke Greek at Turning Point. Just go tell them. But now, here's the deal. The one who does not love does not know God for theos agape estin. God love is. Now, a translation, you all know what the translation, how it translates it. Most translations say God is love. God is love. Now, notice, God doesn't just love. God is love, right? It's telling us something about the essence of God. God is love. But look the way the Message Bible paraphrase puts it. My beloved friends, let us continue to love each other since love comes from God. Wait a minute. Do you see this? That's the message paraphrased. We had a translation, God is love, but we have a paraphrase saying, since love comes from God. But how many of you see there's a huge difference there? Notice how the ending has changed. Not God is love, but love comes from God. Now, I've got a problem with that 
Because the truth that John wanted us to get in his original writing is not that God just loves, but his essence is love. He is love. He loves because he is love. So with the paraphrased Message Bible folks, an important truth about God is lost. And so if all I've got is a paraphrase, and I've been, I got saved at Turning Point three months ago, and, I, and I've got a Message Bible, and that's all that I've got, and I'm reading this, I, I lose a huge truth because I'm, un, I'm, I'm not understanding something about God's nature that John wanted us to understand. God is love. God is love. Man, I mean, for, his... his being is love. So you might read a paraphrase for pleasure, but I don't recommend a paraphrase for your study Bible. You want to use a translation. Amen? You with me? Because I want to know God is love. Now, how do you know you have a good translation? Okay, it's very simple. The more accurate the translators were in translating from Hebrew or Greek into English the better the translation is. I mean, that's not profound. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, then how accurate were mine? Well, let me tell you what I think some of the best translations are. And this is not all of them, but here's a few. The King James is a good translation, but it's not the only one. The New King James, I use that uh, in my devotional. The NASB, the New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, I think the New Living Translation is a really good one. New Living Translation. It's a newer one. That's why it's called New. And tra- notice it says living, living what? Translation. Now, if you really want to grow in your understanding of Scripture, here's some advice. Save your money and get a good study Bible. I want you to grow in the Word. Folks, I've been in this thing a while now. I've been walking with God, by the grace of God, because of his grace towards me, since I was 18. I've been preaching since I was 19. I've been studying the Bible my whole life. Okay? And I'm going to tell you, the more I see Christians who are grounded in the Bible, the less they are deceived, and the less they're inclined to go off into wacko stuff. Okay? And there's a lot of wacko stuff out there. I, let the Word of God be first. The Word first. Learn the Word. Learn it better than any book you have in the world. Learn your Bible. Study it. Thank God you've got a copy of the Bible. You've got all kinds of translations to choose from. I mean, you've got it on the computer. You've got it everywhere. There is no excuse for Christians to not read their Bible. Now, many in our church are going through the Bible in a year again. And I can't wait to get to it every day. Now, I'll be out now, I agree. When you're going through some of that Old Testament stuff and the Levitical laws and, you know, how to build the tabernacle and all of that, oh, I just, Lord, help me to read this. I, I experience that. But sooner or later, something jumps at me, and I see a truth, and it's that honey that goes down into my soul. And the more I read it, the more I think like God. And the more I think like God, the more stable I am. You know what stability is? It's the ability to stay. Have you ever known people, the good people, they just had no stability. They didn't stay anywhere. They're here, they're there, they're everywhere. They're in this relationship, the next one. And they're, 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 you never know what they're going to do next. No, we want stable, Holy Ghost-filled, 
Christians who are influencing the culture. And it begins by daily gathering the manna of the Word of God. That's my broken record. So now, let, let me give you three good study Bibles. This is just for your information. The New King James Study Bible is a great one. The ESV Study Bible or the NIV Study Bible. Now, here's why you want a study Bible. Because you can easily reference the original work in Greek, Aramaic, or Hebrew. And a study Bible always gives you more and better information of the Scriptures. And it gives you, so you're not left to figure it all out on your own. Like going through the Bible in a year. Uh, if you've got a study Bible to access, then a lot of things are explained to you that are mysterious if somebody doesn't teach you. So, a, a study Bible gives you more and better information on the Scriptures. It gives you cross-references from elsewhere in the Bible that have to do with the same subject, same topic, or same person. Here's an example. An example in the English Standard Version Study Bible. You are informed in John 9.25. You're reading it, and there's the red ink, and you read in John 19.25 how the Roman soldiers cast lots for Jesus' seamless tunic. But the study Bible will inform you right then and there that that is a fulfillment of the biblical prophecy given in Psalms twenty-two, eighteen. They divide my garments among them, wrote David prophetically, and for my clothing they cast lots. So instead of just reading, well, they cast lots for Jesus' clothes, you have your study Bible tells you, hey, this is a fulfillment of prophecy out of Psalms 22. And you go, whoa. Okay? Now I'm going to go where many fear to tread. I'm going to talk about King James onlyism for a minute. And this is fresh on my mind because I had a, trust me, hearty debate last week with somebody who is um, totally King James only. And boy, that was, a, that was extended. And I'll tell you the truth, I had a headache when it was all done. But, but I, I think I won. But now, watch this. There are some, and there's a lot of them in America, who hold the firm view that the King James Version, the thou wouldest, shouldest, couldest, the King James Version, produced in 1611, is the only valid Bible version that only the King James translators accurately translated the original Greek and Hebrew into the English language, and that all other versions, all other versions are corrupt on one level or another. Oh, they believe it with all their heart. I've had people come to this church, and before they became a part of our church, they wanted to know, do you preach from the King James? And I said, how come? Well, because if you don't, I can't come here. I said, well, I, <laughs> because no, I don't. I don't. Not, not Every once in a while, I'll use it, but I'll show you why in a moment. Now, and if you're a King James-only person here, I love you. And going over this, I'm not in any way making fun of your stance. But I want to hopefully poke some holes in it, okay? Because there's a whole world of other Bibles out there that you may enjoy. Now, um, why is this wrong? Why, why is this King James only? It can be, there, there are some folks who even believe that the King James translators were as inspired as the original Bible writers, that they were being moved along by the Holy Ghost in their translation. Just like the original writers, you know, Peter, James, John, Jude, Paul, as they were moved along by the Holy Ghost as they wrote the New Testament, 
they believe the King James translators, some of them, were just as inspired to translate into the King James Bible. No. Now, let me give you some reasons. First, if the King James Version, which is a 1611 English translation of the Bible, and it's also called the Authorized Version, if you ever hear Authorized Version, that's King James, is truly the only infallible, inerrant, and inspired Word of God, if that's true, then what about the billions of people who have lived and died and never understood a word of English, but were saved under and enjoyed another translation of the Bible that was translated into their own language. Are you really going to go to them and say to them right now, other parts of the globe where they do not speak English, you have never had the real word of God? You don't have a real Bible? And you never will? Catch this now. You never will enjoy the real Bible until you learn to speak English? All you got to do is extrapolate this thing to its final conclusion, and it's ridiculous. Amen. Come on. Amen. So you're going to tell them you never had the scriptures? You've been drinking from poison, corrupt waters? A corrupted translation? So King James onlyism is ethnocentric. Are you with me? That is, it favors one ethnic group, English speakers. That's it. English speakers. If you're not an English speaker, you don't have the real Bible. Prior to the King James Version, the earlier Bibles were printed in Latin. So did the faithful over the centuries who either never had access to the Bible or read it in Latin. Did they go to hell because they never held the King James Version in their hands? Or did God's children prior to the King James Version never enjoy the true word of God? Come on. By claiming that the King James Version is God's only chosen version, the KJV-only crowd is dismissing tens of centuries of Christendom and implying that the majority of the world populations today cannot know the truth of God's Word. That's arrogant and it's nonsensical. Because I don't know about you, but my God wants everybody to have His Word. And so God raises up translators. Amen? who give their lives to translating the Bible, but they don't translate it. They don't go, you know, to some remote tribe in Africa and say, before you can learn the Bible, let's learn thee, thou, wouldest, shouldest, couldest. Let's learn, let's learn 1600s King James English, and then, and then I'll teach the Bible. No, 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 no. The bottom line is that the King James Version is one of several good translations, all of whose translators faithfully translated the Bible out of Hebrew and Greek into the English language. So in summary, the Bible's original writings have been faithfully, accurately, and voluminously transferred down through the ages through copyists, and paraphrases should not be used as study Bibles where translations are best and there are numerous good ones. All right. All right. Now, boy, I'm a little nervous doing this again tonight, but I'm going to open it up for some questions. Um, here's the stipulation. If I don't know it, I'm going to tell you I don't know it. If, if, if it's something I need to dedicate uh, more time to than we have left for us tonight, I'll tell you that. 
and you can't ask me personal questions like about my dogs or um, <laughs> just keep it, keep it Bible. So let me get some questions here, and I'll do my very best. Okay, so I wasn't here last week, so you may have covered this. But why in the Old Testament sometimes God tells um, his warriors to go in and kill the animals, the children, the women, mm-hmm. the men, kill them all. Mm-hmm. And then other times he says, just go kill the men. Or, mm-hmm. you know, it's not as severe. And then there seems to be some something like they're not clean or they're impure or something like that's the reason. I, I don't really understand that. Okay. Generally, when you find God instructing Israel, it was always Israel, and it was Israel delivered from Egypt. It was Canaan conquest Israel. Um, You find that it's in the context, when it's men, women, children, and animals, you find that it's in the context of the conquest of Canaan. And we shared last week that God had given the Canaanites, and there were several ites in there, you know, the Amorites, Hittites, Jebusites, all the ites. God had given them over four centuries to repent. They were steeped in, as a matter, the whole time that Israel was languishing in Egypt in slavery, God was, God was giving those tribes in the land of Canaan opportunity to repent. He told Abraham early on, your descendants are going to be a long time in Egypt. Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And God was telling them that he waits until it's clear that a person, I think this is true of individuals or it's true of nations, that that, an individual or this nation, it's clear they're never going to repent. I've given them ample opportunity. They're never going to repent. So sin reaps or, or reaches a ripeness, like ripe fruit, but a bad fruit. Okay. And then when it reaches that place, God says, okay, uh, they're never going to repent. Now, I shared last week my best shot at why the women and children and so forth is because they were so corrupted by the idolatry that God saw their future. And God saw, like, for instance, I believe in the age of accountability, okay? And... I believe only God knows when that age of accountability is for each person. But when his younger children, why would he do that? Because it could have been saving them. Because they were taught, they were steeped in centuries of idolatry. And um, not to mention, if they had not been taken, they would have been orphaned and died a horrible death in the wilderness. So there wasn't really, you know, let's face it, folks. Terrible things happen when God has to judge a nation. I mean, it's never, let's just take it out of Canaan for a minute and let's look at Sodom. Or let's look at Noah's day. The whole world, men, women, children, animals. Sodom and Gomorrah, men, women, children, animals. What happened in both instances? Well, God gave Noah's generation 120 years to repent. The Canaanites got 400 years. He gave them 120 years to repent, and they did not repent, though Noah preached while he built. Because Peter tells us he was a preacher of righteousness. So they had had Noah preaching to them. 
Um, I don't know who the Canaanites had, but God was trying to reach them. Then you look at Sodom and Gomorrah. They had the testimony of Abraham because Abraham delivered them from an enemy years before they were judged. And the king and all those people got to meet the holiest man on the planet. And they didn't repent. So when their sin became ripe, God judged the men, the women, the children. Why didn't he, and the animals. Why didn't he leave the children? What would they have been left to? Uh, Noah's day. I, I, I've often tried to imagine the flood. How horrible. How horrible. Floodwaters rising. Everything drowning. If you're there at that time and you're, and you're watching this, uh, you're going, God, stop. Please stop. But see, we have to understand. God is love. But because he's love, he's holy. And when he finally has to judge, it's never pretty, but he does it. And we learned last week, he's a just God. He's a fair God. And so why the women and children? Why the women and children in those days? Why the women and children in Sodom and Gomorrah? And you know what? I believe I could point to Rome, ancient Rome, and say God finally judged Rome. And I believe... Well, the book of Revelation is clear. that There is a fierce judgment coming, folks. And when that fierce judgment comes, we're talking about Armageddon. There's not going to be men, women, and children there. Women and children and animals, yes. So it's hard for our natural minds to reckon it with God being behind it. But we can't understand how God sees sin. And why God must judge sin when it gets ripe. I believe America is being given a chance to repent. And I don't see America repenting right now. I see an apostasy happening in America. So is there a ripe, a a place of ripe, uh, fruitful, you know, ripe, sinful fruit with America where God will finally say that's it? I, I believe if America doesn't repent, America will not always exist I don't know if that helps but if you look at the judgment of God all through the Bible it was always oh wow but God judges that's why repent repent the first word out of Jesus mouth when he started his ministry was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand all right next was the was it the King James version when it when it was first translated, the language of the day, was it, was it Elizabethan language that was spoken during that time? Is the reason that we I'm have not the an expert in that, thousand? but I would guess, yes. Okay. Yes, it was Old English. And oh, okay. English has gone through many transitions down through the centuries. Um, I, I'll be the first to admit King James English is beautiful to read. Right. It has a poetic tenor to it but a lot of the words and i'll tell you there's some things said in king james i could never quote to a modern congregation without getting in trouble (laughs) and i I could give you one now but i would get in trouble (laughs) but there's language in there that we would never use today right so why you know anyway uh one other thing you had you answered a question that I have had on my heart for many, many years that I had never had answered for me 
thought, studied, looked at books and everything I could find on it. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Mm -hmm. And I never understood that question. And you gave the answer that day. And that was because all of the sin, past, present, future, Mm -hmm. was on Jesus at that time. And God turned his face away. That's right. And that judgment that you said on Sunday finally answered that question Mm -hmm. that I've wondered about since I was 23 years old. Now, I will in turn ask all of you a question based on that. Here's a question. When he took our sin upon himself, did he become a sinner? Good. Because some teach he literally became a sinner. But he was a sacrifice for sin. So, major important distinction. Thank you. That's good. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Um, the, when he found the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, where are the originals to the Old and the New Testament kept? The Dead Sea Scrolls? N- well, like the originals for the, the New Testament. Oh, when, we, you mean what John originally wrote? Yeah. They don't exist anymore. And so where, what do we, do we just compare one translation? You, tr- you can't, you, you compare one copy to another, to another, to another. And when you have them going so far back that they're really close to when the original would be written and all the copies agree, then you're certain then that you have what was originally written. But none of the original papyrus, Old or New Testaments exist. And there's not, like... The professor, what was found, uh-huh. was a thousand years older than what yeah. he had. So there are Jews that are keeping. The oh, those are in museums and stuff. Those are being okay. kept in other but different it's parts just of the world. The Old Testament. That well, the Dead Sea Scrolls were Old Testament, but the original, what Moses wrote, for instance, the the uh, Pentateuch, first five books of the Old Testament, those are gone. The original, the first papyrus. But no, the Dead Sea Scrolls are throughout the world in different places in the world kept. And you can see them if you want to pay the money and travel and look. Okay? Okay. There, well, he'll come back to you. Way back there. Okay. Yeah, uh, given the translations uh, from Hebrew to Greek and, and many other languages, why the, um, the names like uh, Joshua HaMashiach uh, has mm-hmm. not been kept in Greek or English or other languages? I mean, like uh, what we know as Jesus Christ. Jesus is just a translation out of Yeshua. It's just, it's just a, it's a, um, it's, you know, like I, my name in another language is not Jeff, but in English it's Jeff. So Jesus is just translation of, Je- of Yeshua. You mean why aren't we just calling him Yeshua? Instead of Yeshua? Yeah, well, if you want to call him Yeshua, you can. Um, the, the meaning of the name is the same, anointed one, the anointed one. And so the meaning is the same. And I know people that 
kind of like King James only people, they will only say Yeshua. But to me, again, you're getting bogged down in semantics because Jesus means the same exact thing. It's just the English word. Okay? Okay. Thank you. Okay. Talk about sacrificial uh, rituals in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. I have had someone say to me before that the God of the Old Testament was a bloodthirsty God. Yeah. Do you think that God instituted the blood sacrifice way back in the beginning Mm -hmm. because it was a precursor to the blood sacrifice of Jesus on the cross? Oh, absolutely. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Amen. So all the sacrifices of the rams and the goats and the pigeons and the doves and all that, that was all symbolic for the ultimate sacrifice that mm-hmm. Jesus would yeah. make. But they and didn't even, know that then, mm-hmm. but it was blood. Surely, surely back in that day and time, they thought, why do we have to kill things to please God? Yeah. Uh, you know, so because the life is in the blood. It goes all the way back. You first find it in Cain and Abel. And why did God reject Cain's offering and accept Abel's? Because Abel's was a blood sacrifice. Abel's was the shedding of blood. Cain's was a vegetable offering. Cain's was, I'm going to do it my way. Because the first family had taught their children because God had taught them. There is only salvation. Who shed the first blood after the fall? God did. Because he covered Adam and Eve in animal skins. So he had to shed blood in order to cover them, which was picturesque of, of covering sin. So... Um, God shed the first blood, so God taught the first family. The life is in the blood. Sin is only dealt with by the shedding of blood. He's not a bloodthirsty God. He's a blood-preaching God. Okay? So Adam and Eve told their children, if you're going to get your sins covered, if you're going to keep it right with God, it's in the blood. So Abel understood it, and Abel obeyed, and Abel brought to God a blood sacrifice. Uh, Cain said, you know what, Uh, that's messy, I'm going to do it my way. Cain represents so many people today, they don't like God's way, so they go their own way. And God rejected Cain's offering because it was not a blood sacrifice. Now, I'll be the first to admit to you, I love animals. It's hard for me to read. I'm being honest with you. As I'm going through the Old Testament, I don't like reading all the blood sacrifice, all the, the killing of animals. I don't like it. It bothers me. I don't like it. But see, again, this is what sin did. Sin was ghastly. We don't understand what sin did to the universe. The, the repercussions of sin, the, the horrible uh, consequences of sin. And we see the horrific, horrible nature of sin most expressed with Jesus hanging on the cross. That it took God's only son shedding his eternal blood once for all. No more need for any more animal sacrifices because all those Old Testament sacrifices were pointing down the road. All from Abraham offering Isaac from, you know, all, he didn't really do it, but he did it in a way. He did it figuratively all the way through the Old Testament to Jesus Christ on the cross. God was pointing, preaching, 
So that in the Old Testament, we're anticipating the arrival of a Messiah who will shed his blood once for all. And these terrible, that's why the veil was rent in twain when Jesus died. That's why God, God was saying, I am now putting a total end to all Old Testament sacrifice. It no longer needs to happen because now the blood has been shed once for all by the Lamb of God. That's it, folks.